I received permission to share the following story of our friend from her daughter, Janelle Henning. And our friend is a gal by the name of uh, Agnes C. Iverson. Janelle told me over the phone, Mom wasn't afraid to share her story, that Jesus rescued her, and she wanted her story to help others and encourage others. You wouldn't uh, know this about Agnes's life. Uh, it wasn't in the official uh, obituary, but Agnes died on May 24th last spring. And a week later, her funeral was here at Bethesda. Her daughter is Janelle Henning. At the funeral, my colleague, Pastor Brian Quaid, told the story. Didn't know this about Agnes. He told the story that Agnes had gotten into alcohol and had rebelled against God, which was the primary source of her divorce. She remarried Janelle's dad, Dwayne Iverson, and then battled alcohol many for many years. And then Jesus redeemed Agnes and changed her life. And in Janelle's words, her changed life was a testimony to God's power, and it was a part of my life. This is Janelle speaking. Janelle's life and my brother's redemption and my dad's redemption too. I remember sitting in the sanctuary going, what a gospel story. As Agnes is alive with the Lord and is in heaven seeing the glory of God, her testimony is one of God's grace and mercy and the hope of being rescued. Let us know this clearly. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. A thousand years after David lived, Paul quotes Samuel's, or the account with Samuel anointing David. In Acts chapter 13, 22, a thousand years later, Paul says, David is a man after God's own heart. And so welcome to this second, ser second message in a series we're entitling The Heart of the King. We're going to look at David, a man after God's own heart. Kind of an interesting title because we know the full scope of David's life. And one of the things that I find great courage in is that when we come to the scriptures, the scriptures are not embarrassed to tell us that even Bible heroes, even Bible heroes are a mess. The following Jesus, you would think that if you were trying to convince someone that following Jesus is the only way, You'd want to leave out the negatives. That's not what the scripture does. Not at all. And we're going to see that in the life of David. As we look at this man after God's own heart, we're going to see, first of all, this. We'll first take note that God is true to his word. And as we look at David, you're going to see this paradox. This paradox. I thought he was a man after God's own heart. Why would he ever do that? Secondly, you're going to see this incredible meteor explosion of success and popularity, his, his name and his fame. And then we'll take a look at his shame. It's both and. That's part of David's story, this man after God's own heart. And then finally, well, finally, we'll, what's the single bullet I hope that you take away from this message? It's simply this. What David does, we can do. And we are called to do. 
and that's throw ourselves at his feet and beg for mercy, beg for grace, and God will give it. How do I know that? Here's the proof. Here's the proof, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to go this morning, but first let's pray. Sovereign Lord, today we study and learn from and we learn about a very special child of yours that you loved and you loved very much and he was always in your hands. Your own son, Jesus, has the blood and DNA of David running through his veins, even now this morning as Jesus sits at your right hand. So Father, humbly and graciously, we ask you to guide my words. And as we study and ponder David's life, oh, how you love David. His house lasts forever, lasts forever because of your name and your faithfulness. So please, I would ask, Lord, that you would protect our hearts from smugness, that his mistakes, we would think, will never be repeated in my life. How arrogant and short-sighted not to hear caution or even worse, to, it, to miss his written testimony of repentance. You invite us like your son, David, to cry out for mercy. So at the beginning of this message, we appeal to your unfailing, everlasting, never-ending grace and compassion. So we pray, Christ, have mercy. We pray, Lord, have mercy. We pray, Christ, have mercy. So extend your name, extend your fame, your influence for those who have gathered into, and as we leave into a broken and needy world who are messy and we are messy. But Lord, we thank you. Messy people is who you use. And all God's people said, amen and amen. A couple of things I want to encourage you to do as we go in this message. First of all, if you have a bulletin insert, there's on the back side of that bulletin is an outline. It may help you follow this message and take away some things that the Holy Spirit will later work in your heart. And the second thing is, we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. There's a lot of chapters, so bear with me, okay? 2 Samuel, I want to encourage you to uh, find a pew Bible, or if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's on pages 263 and 264, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the first thing, as we look at David's life, is this, his life or his story or his narrative, I'm calling it, is a paradox personified. His narrative is one of a paradox personified, and we see that as seen in what's called the David Covenant. The David Covenant. There's several covenants that are in the scriptures. You can probably find even more of them. The famous one for Noah is a Noah Covenant. In Genesis chapter 6, God says, I'll never destroy the world with a flood again. There's an Abrahamic covenant that God says to Abraham, I will make your name a great nation. And what we're going to take a look at is the David covenant. The David covenant. Did you find it in your Bibles there? And I'm picking up in verse 11, and I'll read through verse 16, the David covenant. This is what God says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you will rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's three key words. One, forever, repeated eight times. Number two is the word house, 
repeated seven times. And the one who makes this is the word, is the one called the sovereign Lord, the one who oversees, the one who has things in control, the one who holds us in his hand. He is the sovereign one who says, David, your house will last forever. And there is the assumption that flawed as he is, he is representative, not warning against bad behavior, but an inadvertent witness to the normalcy and an inevitability of imperfection. Wow. All this week I wrestled with this, but God, isn't he a man after your own heart? How does a man after your own heart do the things he did? The book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, can simply be seen as a contrast between Saul, 1 Samuel, and David, 2 Samuel. But don't miss that there is no perfect king. Our hope is never found in a human king, but in the king of kings. There would be another king, another king born in Bethlehem, and he would take his ancestor David's greatest defeat, his murder and his adultery, and he would extend that in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you say you have anger, you've committed murder. That's what the descendant, the one who always sits on the throne, says. Jesus would come. Jesus would come and fulfill the scriptures. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, his first public ministry, if you will, he went into a synagogue and he read from Isaiah 28 this prophecy that was written long before Jesus ever walked on planet Earth, 700 years. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, 18 through 19, says, the anointed one will bring good news to the poor, release for the captives. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and debts will be forgiven. Really good news, by the way, if you are poor and captive. The one who is to come and the one who came will heal the blind, the oppressed, and those who are in need of a favor. And then Jesus sat down, and what happened? He said, today these scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus omitted one thing in that prophecy in Isaiah. He omitted the vengeance of the Lord. The reason why? He would receive the vengeance. He would walk to Calvary. He would be the recipient of divine wrath of God. That was his, and he would take all that on. He would take the shame. David's defeats, his failures, point to a need for a savior. He throws himself at the one who shows mercy. With a promise like 2 Samuel chapter 7, you would say, he's got all that going for him. What possibly, what possibly could go wrong? Devotional writer Paul Tripp was helpful to me in my study and he said, when you read 2 Samuel, look at the king of kings. How does the king of kings work? What do I learn about his heart? What does he want for his people? What happens when I think I know better? How does God respond? This is a paradox, a paradox personified in the life of David. And so we see in David's life, both name and shame. If you want to add the word fame there, we see his fame rise and his shame rise. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, you can go back. 
And there was a chant that was prominent in that day. And this simple chant was this, Saul has slain his th thousands and David his ten thousands. Just to give you a little context to what that was, following David and Goliath's story, 1 Samuel 17 verse 57 says, Saul said, who are you? In verse 57, this is a great scene, huh? David's holding Goliath's head. Wow. He said, who are you? No one would ever ask that question again. I'm David. I'm Jesse's son. One of the Bethlehem, from Bethlehem. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 5 tells us that David built his reputation. In fact, let me just read that to you. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, after David and Goliath. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David, he was so successful, Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and, that pleased, and this pleased all of the troops and Saul's officers as well. Don't forget this. Don't forget, Saul slayed his thousands. David is 10,000. I heard one speaker say this years ago. He said, Saul missed an opportunity to pull David in his cart and say, but we saw together, we slayed 11,000 men. Not at all. Saul was a can't-miss king. He was head above others, but he was a disobedient king. He established and stabilized the country of Israel. But David was a missed over king, wasn't he? When Samuel came to anoint all of one of Jesse's boys, he was forgotten. David himself said, I'm from the unknown least tribe of Benjamin. But he had a heart after God. He extended Israel and he expanded Israel. Second Samuel carries out 10 chapters. If you, have, if you want to quickly just turn to 2 Samuel right now, you'll, you'll see each chapter and you'll see victory after victory after victory and studying for this message. I used the ESV study Bible and it caused me just to put down my study Bible and go win after win after win after win. 2 Samuel chapter 8 talks about David's successes. 2 Samuel chapter 10 talks about his defeat from Amalekites. David was a paradox. He kills Goliath, but he doesn't kill Saul, even though that Saul wants to kill him. Then you come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, this shame chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts out with this. When kings go off to war, David stayed. He sent his men off to war. He saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. He sent a messenger to inquire who she was. And then he sent a servant to go grab her. And this man after God's own heart breaks half the Ten Commandments in a couple weeks, if not a month tops. He breaks the commandment about stealing. He breaks the commandment about adultery. He breaks the commandment about murder. He breaks the commandment about coveting. He breaks, breaks the commandment about coveting someone's possessions. This is the man after God's own heart. The Bible doesn't glorify the heroes of the faith. It's raw and awkward. 
And you might be asking me the question, so pastor, where's the justice? This is a man after God's own heart. What does this mean? Maybe you're thinking, I have no hope. I have no hope. Maybe you're thinking on a different perspective and saying, see, God used David afterwards. Sin's not that big of a deal. David was confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He tells him a parable. And David says in that parable, that person who took advantage of the poor landowner must die. Nathan says, you're the man. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, Samuel, or excuse me, Nathan gives a prophetic word and he says, calamity will come on your own house. And when you read the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12b, you recognize this realization that sin has consequences. And when you list them all out, your heart is heavy for David. Listen to what happened because of his sin, because of murder, because of adultery, because of coveting, because of stealing, because of on and on it goes. First of all, his child died because of his sin, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the second half. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you have this awful, horrible incident that his own daughter was sexually assaulted, raped, and defiled, Tamar. The third thing that happens was that the man who did this was his son. And his son Amnon was murdered by his stepbrother in 2 Samuel chapter 13. For five chapters, you read that Saul, uh, David's kingdom was ripped and divided. And the ripple effects are five years of horrible parenting where he doesn't even talk to his son Absalom who murders Amnon. He's humiliated in his bedroom with concubines, 2 Samuel chapter 16. And finally, his son Absalom is killed. Yes, he eventually comes back on the throne, but he's never the same again. Devotional writer Chad Bird, who I found great encouragement from, quotes Gregory the Great, and he says this, when we see anyone's sin, we should first weep over ourselves in their calamity because we have either fallen like them or we can fall. Bird goes on to say, in the adulterer I see my lust, in the murderer I see my hate, in the thief I see my coveting, in the unbeliever I see my idolatry, in every sin and every sinner I see myself. We are either sinning or we have sinned or we sin in the same way as anyone. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, and he does because he is mercy incarnate. I give him my heart. Bo Gertz in his book called The Hammer of God says, what does he do with your heart? Your heart is like a dirty can on a garbage heap. And he reaches in, he grabs the dirty can, and he brings it home with him. And he says, this one belongs to me. So take hope. This person who's filled with paradox this one who has this launch into fame. David, Saul has slayed his thousands and David has slayed his ten thousands. 
this one who win after win after win after win, comes out of those wins, and he murders a man. He takes his, his wife illegally. He covets. He has this calamity. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? The heart of the king is this. His narrative is one of repentance from iniquity. David writes a series of penitential psalms. His most famous one is from Psalm 51. I invite you to turn with me because I want to read it. It's on page 489. David's life is a labyrinth of ambiguities, Eugene Peterson writes. The most interesting thing that can be said about him is he is an interesting man. And his prayers express everything we're capable of experiencing. Psalm 51, you'll notice what the text says there, the background. A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. His prayer is our prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are God, my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will never despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in the sacrifice of the righteous, in the burnt offerings offered whole. The bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. It's striking that in this psalm and in his other penitential psalms, psalms David never shows a resolve not to do it again. He depends on God's forgiveness. Sin in, is in itself beyond our power to deal with. Psalms have consoled, counseled, and guided God's people for three millennials. It was predicted that there would be, there would be a king that would come. I want to have you turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Good scholarship says that 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were really one book together. Editors split them for readers like you and me to make it a little bit clearer. At the very beginning, before Saul was an anointed king, before David was anointed king, 
a woman by the name of Hannah who had never had a baby, wanted a baby, finally had a baby, and that baby was Samuel, said these prophetic words beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She said three things in verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 2, on page 230 if you want to follow along. She first says this in verse 7, the Lord sends poverty and wealth and he humbles and he exalts. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Who is the most humble person who ever lived? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ who left heaven for you and me. Second thing she says in verse 9, she said, He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not strength that one prevails, but those who oppose the proud will be broken. And the Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. Despite evil, God is at work. Good Friday was not good for Jesus. It was good for you and I. Satan thought he may be one. Far from it. The third thing that she says prophetically, and she, tilt, she tips her hand, is in verse, verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God himself will raise up a messianic king born supernaturally who will predict his own death, predict his own resurrection, and then he'll pull it off. Listen to a person like that. What's the difference between being sor sorry and repenting? I read this in my devotions just this morning, and I thought, I think this fits. Johann Ernest von Holst, that sounds like a German, doesn't it? Was a Lutheran pastor in Latvia in the 1800s. He wrote a devotional called The Crucified is My Love. Didn't Judas's remorse have a promise of grace? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Peter's sadness was of that kind. Peter wept over his sin and it was guided by the gracious look. He sought and found forgiveness with him. Grief over sin is transfigured to redeeming repentance only when it's pervaded by faith in forgiveness. Judas too could have found grace at the cross of his betrayed and dying master if he had sought and believed it, but he was no longer able to do that. So was the judgment of the hardness of his heart. He could no longer believe in God's compassion. His remorse plunged him into the abyss of despair. Worldly grief produces death. Judas went and hanged himself. Over the abyss into which he sinks, the Lord's words resound. The Son of Man goes as it is written to him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This pain lament from sin of the whole world. That's the testimony of the body and blood of Christ. This is the proof. Jesus gave his life for us. When we take the body and blood of Christ, I read this this week and I thought, really? Why haven't I seen that before? When we hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he gave it thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The next words after that are we are to examine ourselves. And if we take this unworthily, this is what the devotional writer said, and it just jumped off the pages. 
There's a death sentence. We heap judgment upon ourselves. Wow. I read those words and I thought, well, I have never, I've never seen that before. No one comes to this meal like they deserve it. No one comes to this meal. No one deserves this. This is given freely. That's why we practice open communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you, but it's for sinners who repent and say, God, have mercy on me. This grace is greater than all our sin. Hear the words of institution. There was a written notice above Jesus which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, hear his voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the wrath of God. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it to the lips of Jesus. And with he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So these four questions are so important for us as we examine our hearts. Question number one, do you believe the promises found in the scriptures that Jesus' blood forgives you? Do you recognize Jesus' real presence here in this meal? Do you repent of your sins? And number four, are you reconciled with fellow believers here in this body, here in this fellowship? Bow your heads and talk to your king. I invite you to do that, to examine your hearts, friends. Lord Jesus, you hear the prayers of your people. And I thank you that there is mercy for us, broken people as we are. Hear us as we confess our faith. Will you stand? For 2,000 years, the Christian church has confessed her faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And I'd invite you to do that as well, too. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Lord, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen.